Heavenly Father, thank you for this loving group of people who have been called by your Spirit, who gather here regularly because we love you and we want to know you more and serve you better. Uh, The heart of a man or woman who wants to know you and worship you in spirit and in truth is such a precious thing, and it's so often uh, overshadowed by the nonsense that we bring to this moment, to the preconceived notions and to the ritual that's unnecessary and disconnected from Scripture and from the baggage that we've been given as children or in, in other cases from other churches. All that stuff gets in the way, Father, and we know it and we... We're glad that we can just put it aside and on a morning like this we can just know you in the simplest and truest ways by your word and in worship and in prayer in the counsel of godly men and women. You've made all these things possible, Father. You brought these things to bear so that those you've called into faith, those precious children as the scriptures call us, would not remain infants in Christ but would grow in stature. Because in the end of it all, Father, our goal is to be like Christ. And Christ grew, we should grow. And, and Christ came to obey, we should obey. And Christ came to know all things. And Father, one day by your power and glory, we will know all things. And in the meantime, teach us just a little more. This morning, Lord, in the, in the scriptures before us, we'll study events that are, are hard to grasp. Things that are just so uncomfortable to consider. Sin that seems to want to lead us to close up the book rather than to pursue a, a study of it deeper. But, Father, in, the, in these bad things that have happened in the past, we pray, Father, you would direct our hearts to know why you felt it good in the long run to incorporate them in your word and, and how we are to put them to work in our lives. We trust that you have that purpose in mind, and we look for it this morning. And we pray in confidence and in hope. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Well, let's dive back into our second account of how Jewish society began to lose its way in the time of Judges. That's the story we're studying this morning. It's in chapter 19. We're following a Levite husband and his concubine, his slave wife, and the servant of the Levite, these three. And they're headed back north from Bethlehem to their home in Ephraim. And they have taken the risky step of traveling from the town they departed at a late hour in the afternoon. It's risky, as we heard last week, because it means they're, they're rushing to get to the next town before nightfall. And if you travel at night in this day and in this uh, place, it was quite dangerous. Uh, and so now they find themselves, as the story ended last week, after nightfall, still seeking shelter in a Jewish town called Gilbeah. And they came into the city, and as they did, as you remember, they were unable to find accommodation, which itself was a bad omen of what was coming. And so they decided they would just camp in the middle of the town square that night, for lack of a better alternative. And they soon began to learn that all is not well, all is not right with this little town. It has an evil, demonic side to it. And the evil of this place is going to trigger even greater sin among the men of Israel. And that's where the story is taking us. So we'll begin again, verse 16. Then behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening. Now the man was from the hill country of Ephraim. And he was staying in Gibeah, but the men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going? Where do you come from? He said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, for I am from there. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, but I am now going to my house, and no man will take me into his house. Yet there is both straw and fodder for our donkeys, and also bread and wine for me, your maidservant, and the young man 
who is with your servants? There's no lack of anything. The old man said, Peace to you. Only let me take care of all your needs. However, do not spend the night in the open square. So he took him into his house and gave the donkeys father. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. Well, as this traveling family is getting over the shock of the town's lack of hospitality, they come across this fellow Ephraimite, this old man. He walks into the town from working in the fields that day. Obviously, he's coming in quite late himself. And he tells the story of how he moved to Gilbeah, probably, we assume, for the work. But he's been here long enough to know what this town is all about. So as he comes upon this family in the town square, he senses these folks, they aren't from around here. And he begins to ask them the questions you read. He asks them, where are you coming from? Who are you? Etc. And the Levite, the man of our story, begins to explain his circumstances. He says, well, I was traveling home. I came from Bethlehem. But I've come here now, and no one has offered us any room. And then he says in verse 19, he observes, they, they have this utter lack of hospitality, but it isn't because they lack resources. He goes on to say, on the contrary, he says, I can see they've got plenty of food for my donkeys. They've got food and wine. Uh, the people here certainly could have accommodated me if they chose to, but they haven't. And so he's mystified as to why this town has been so cold to them. His observation is the commentary, obviously, on the state of the heart of these people and more broadly on the state of where Israel is. In only a generation or two, and we, we say that because I said last week, this account takes place not long after the people of Israel had entered the land under Joshua. So in only in a generation or two, the people of the land are self-evidently without concern for their brothers. I know it's hard from our point of view today, living in the culture we know today, it's really hard for us to understand the importance of hospitality. But you can't overestimate how important it was in these days. You and I see it merely as a courtesy. And we only extend that courtesy, I might add, when it's convenient for us and generally for people we like or know. When's the last time some stranger walked off the street, knocked on your door and said, I'd like accommodation, and you said, well, of course, come on in. In fact, if you did that, someone later would probably tell you that was the most foolish thing you've ever done in your entire life, right? Everything in the culture presses against that kind of behavior. Not in this day. Offering accommodation to a traveling stranger was considered a duty as significant as rescuing an animal in distress or helping put out a neighbor's house fire. That's how much expectation was put on them. To refuse a traveler accommodation when room and resources were plentiful, that was tantamount to walking away from a child who's drowning in a pool. In many cases, it meant putting someone's life at risk if you did not bring them into your home, and therefore, the failure to show hospitality to travelers would result in severe penalty in this culture. We all need to collectively get in our heads here just how severe a rebuke it is on this culture when you hear that they had plenty of everything and no one lets them in his house. The Bible doubles down on this important idea for believers in the New Testament. The fact that our culture has changed is not a reflection that God's standards have changed. Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 1, Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. The New Testament commands us to continue. You notice the word continue is a part of that thought. Continue in this ancient tradition. Notice the writer also demands we continue by showing love to strangers. To strangers. And the word means exactly as it does for us today. The idea of someone you don't know at all. He says continue, which implies do what was done before. 
and in the same sense to the needs of strangers. Hospitality to family and friends in Scripture is assumed. I think sometimes we like to take a lot of credit for that, don't we? I'll put up with your mother for a week. That's got to buy me something. Your brother's coming to visit. Oh, gosh. Well, I guess it's the right thing to do. Some of us have wonderful families and we love when they visit. Okay, for the other 98% of us, families are families, right? You put up with them most of the time and generally you love them. But the point is, we think that's the limit of our obligation. You know, you help the people you know, maybe a neighbor if they have their house flooded or something. Well, that's great. We're supposed to do that. Okay, that's an assumed level of Christian love, friends. That's just table stakes in this process. The scriptures are asking us to do what sinners don't do. Go beyond what the average unbeliever would do. Friends, sinners let their family members stay with them. And when I say sinner, I mean unbeliever. We're all sinners, but I'm saying unbeliever. That part of the society does this instinctively. The love of Christ is supposed to compel us to do even more. So in our culture, showing hospitality may look differently, and I think that's where there's some room for adjustment here. It may not involve putting up total strangers in our own home overnight, as it once did. But maybe instead it means providing food and clothing to those people. Maybe instead it means bringing meals to the homeless or charity in some other form. Hospitality is a general thought. It's not only one way in which it can be provided. I don't want to exclude the possibility, though, that you bring a stranger in once in a while. I'm just acknowledging that in our culture, the morals of our society have deteriorated to the point that that's not always a safe way in which to apply this verse. I don't think Scripture is asking us to do foolish things in that regard. But nurture a generous heart. Nurture a heart that wants to bless strangers in need. And if you do this, you'll be following in the steps of Abraham, who, as we know from Genesis, fed Jesus, pre-incarnate Christ, and angels when they came to visit him one day. So back to the story. This is not a town with that kind of heart, as we've seen. In fact, it's a shocking revelation that they would not accommodate this family. And the town is so heartless and greedy and evil that they are even willing to leave this family out in the cold knowing what kind of atrocity awaits them with the evil of what this town will produce. They do nothing to help. Only this stranger is willing to take them in as we hear. He's a visitor. You notice he's also from Ephraim. So in a town of Benjamites, it's the Ephraimite helping the other Ephraimite. For whatever reason, the evil of this town has not infected his heart yet. So he does what should have been done in the first place. He takes them in. Now, by this time, in the time of Judges, in the age of Judges, we know that even this man's kindness cannot be the end of our story, right? There is no part of the book of Judges in which everything ends on a high note. We've been studying this for a while now. I realize you're waiting for the happy ending. I hope I don't spoil it when I tell you there's no happy ending in this book. There is more. Verse 22. While they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding the door. And they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may have relations with him. Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not commit this act of folly. Here, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out to you that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you wish. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. So as they enjoy the evening in the home, a group of, quote, worthless men have surrounded the house and are seeking entry. The word worthless in Hebrew is literally the word for sons of Belial. Belial is another name for Satan. And they have surrounded the house because, as you read, they intend to rape the Levite who's staying in this house. We wonder why they don't 
want to attack the homeowner himself? Why only the visitor? I would imagine because the guy who owns the home is an old man, as it's been said here, and therefore not of particular interest to their lust. So they demand the visitor instead. This story will remind you of another one I know from Genesis, the story of Lot, when he was in Sodom, in Genesis 19. And he is in this town, and the two angels that had just visited Abraham a moment ago, as we just said, they come into the town, and as visitors, they are under attack in the same way by the men of the city of Sodom. Now, at that time in Genesis 19, the antagonists were depraved Canaanites who lived in Sodom. But this time, friends, the wicked are fellow Jews. The nation of Israel now is doing this kind of thing. So right away we're struck by how far the culture of Israel has deteriorated in just a couple of generations after entering the Canaanite land. Israel is now repeating the worst sin of the surrounding pagan Canaanites. And they're perpetuating that sin on themselves, on their own culture. But the story gets worse. Because the response of this seemingly kind old man is as depraved as the request of the crowd of men outside. Wouldn't you agree? He proposes to give the crowd his own daughter and the concubine of the traveler. Each of those is bizarre on its own. As a father with a daughter about to marry in a couple of weeks, I can't imagine this. Or any of us, I'm sure. How can you imagine doing this? And I have to wonder why he thought he had the license to offer the other guy's wife which he seems to do without asking. The custom of this day demanded that a host do everything he could to protect and care for his guests. But in a patriarchal culture, the concern is predominantly for the men, for the man, for the honor of the man, the honor of the household, the honor of the visitor. It's all from the perspective of the male line. And so in this homeowner's perverse logic, to allow these men to rape the two women was less dishonorable to his reputation than to allow them to molest the male visitor. I mean, he's sort of playing a game of lesser of two evils, I assume. Once again, his proposal is similar to the one that was offered in Lot's situation, if you know that story. Lot offers to put a woman outside the door in place of putting the angels outside the door. And therefore, it makes sense that we would draw some comparisons between Lot's story in Sodom and this story, because they're obviously paralleling one another to a large degree. Back in the time of Genesis 19, we studied Lot as a man who was troubled by the sin of his surroundings. Scripture says he was. But we also learned he was willing to place himself in those surroundings. He made no effort to escape them. The terrible consequences of his choice fell upon him and his family. His moral compass got lost somewhere along the way and the peace of his life went with it. Why? Because he lived a compromised life. That was the story of Lot. And so it must be the same then for this man, this old man. We know he's left his tribe. He's an Ephraimite. What's he doing in a Benjamite city? Wandering away from the place God assigned him. Moreover, he's decided that the work that he's seeking in this place, in these nearby fields, is worth suffering among such depraved, desperately wicked people. And you can tell that he knows that's what's in this town, for that was the motivation to move these people out of the square and get them into the house. That association, him and this town, has brought this man to a point where he could logically, in his own mind, make these kinds of twisted moral trade-offs have a daughter instead of a man. You don't get there overnight. But when you live among people that are this depraved, among a society that has such low moral character, sooner or later it becomes really hard to tell the difference anymore between right and wrong. 
He's reached the point here where he can find justification for abandoning two innocent girls to the depravity of this crowd. I don't know how you get there. It seems unconscionable. So this old man plays a small part in a larger story, much like Lot did in his story. But he's a harbinger for what comes from living the compromised life. He's like the canary in the coal mine. When we start down the path of excusing sin, and friends, that's what he had to do. I mean, at some level, he was excusing what he saw. He calls these guys fellows. That's an endearing term. He's come to see them with some kind of sympathy. When you go down that path, you start excusing sin, whether it's in yourself or whether it's in others. Either way, you're moving in a very dangerous direction because that's a downhill journey. I don't just mean metaphorically. I mean, it picks up speed. It's easy. You don't have to work very hard to take that road. As the going gets easier, you'll go further ahead with greater speed. And one day, you're going to be willing to be bound with immoral friends or, let's say, work associates or something else in our life today. And the next thing you know, those close associations will lead you to make excuse for sin, for their sin or yours. Ultimately, you'll start sharing their sin with them. I mean, it's a stepping stone process. One day you're willing to be around it, the next day you're willing to condone it, and the next day you're willing to do it. This man has found himself in this situation, that is to say, a situation in which he's willing to let his own daughter be raped, because he has made decisions earlier than this one. This reprehensible decision is only the latest in a line of decisions he must have made. His decision to abandon the land that God gave him in the land of the Ephraimites, decision number one. His decision to live among men who were this depraved after discovering it, decision number two. His decision to set down roots by buying a house. You notice he's called a homeowner. He's the owner of the house. He didn't just decide to wander through the town for a time. He's decided he wants to live here for a long time. Decision number three. And then you have tonight's drama. This is just the latest link. In verse 23, we see the man's folly as he pleads with the crowd outside the door. He's asking them to do the right thing. Are you kidding me? Guys come to your house ready to rape another guy, demanding you deliver them into their hands, and you think they're reasonable people you can sit and have a discussion with about the right and wrongs of what's going on? Earlier we saw him whisking the travelers out of the town square, so we know that he understood this was likely to happen. So what good did he expect to accomplish in the conversation? That's the kind of self-delusion that leads us into compromised situations. We think that by the power of our oratory or the magic shine of our righteousness, that if we just drive ourselves into some evil situation and hang out there for a while, we can become that instrument to change everyone else's hearts. Now, certainly God could do that if he chose to do that. And if he's called you to that mission, well, then you have a reason to be there. But if all of that other stuff isn't in place, God's willingness to work with you, God's calling and anointing for you to be there, you're just playing with fire. If somebody says, well, I'm to evangelize to people who are caught in lust and pornography, so I'm going to go spend my days in topless bars talking to the men sitting around the tables. Friends, that's probably not a good strategy for any number of reasons. And it would take a real serious anointing of God and confidence in their heart that that's what God's called them to do before I would ever think that anyone should walk into that situation on a routine basis because of the temptation, the witness effects of it, just the effect of associating with people who are doing wrong things in such perverse way. That is an example, I think, of what you're seeing happen here. A guy who's deluded himself into thinking he can talk him out of it. After the mob refuses the request, the Levite panics, and he decides he needs to take matters into his own hands to save his own skin. Verse 25. But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them, and they raped her and abused her all night until morning. 
and then let her go at the approach of dawn. So the man here is the Levite, as you can tell. The one who owns the concubine is the one who took this action. So he grabs his concubine. Now remember, concubine is a slave wife. It's a wife. He throws her outside the house to the waiting crowd of men. This woman, I have to imagine, must have put up the fight of her life to try to avoid getting taken out of the house. She must have literally gone kicking and screaming as he dragged her out. I mean, can you imagine? What would you do if you knew that's what was going on? But this guy, oblivious to all of that, he had to have pushed her out under force and slammed the door and let her go. I want you to contrast this moment with the one we studied earlier in this chapter when the husband was seen to go speak tenderly to win his bride back. Do you remember that moment? And at the time we studied that, remember I said, don't let that fool you? Well, now you can see actions speak louder than words, don't they? Here you see the man's true feelings toward this woman. No wonder she felt some need to go leave him. Perhaps she saw something in his heart that scared her. In case you're wondering, by the way, there are no good guys in this story. The old man, he's clearly compromised by his association with the evil here. Now you see the Levite, well, he's no man of God. He displays a callous indifference to the life of his wife. He only cares for himself. And again... This is a perfect reflection of the Jewish society in this day, of the whole time of the time of Judges. People doing what is right in their own eyes. But friends, their eyes see nothing but sin. Notice earlier, this old man told the crowd when he offered his daughter and the concubine, you notice what he said to them at the time? He says, so that you can do whatever you think is right, whatever you wish to do. That's the way everyone thought about everything. Whatever you want to do. It very nearly destroyed the Jewish nation in only a very few generations. But this is the book of Judges. So things get worse. Verse 26. As the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where her master was until full daylight. When her master arose in the morning and opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way. Well, then behold, his concubine was lying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us go. But there's no answer. Then he placed her on the donkey, and the man arose and went to his home. When he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine, and cut her in twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. All who saw it said, Nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. Now, this is hard stuff, right? I told somebody recently when they asked me what I was doing at my church, I said, I'm teaching the book of Judges, and they, their face kind of screwed up. Like, you teach that to people? I mean, you really want to talk about that in church? I said, I don't want to talk about it in church, but it's in the Bible. It's there for a reason. So you see, this poor woman is assaulted the entire night by who knows how many men, and at dawn she's finally released, and she falls unconscious, it appears, at the doorstep of the house. Notice the timing here. It's, it's subtle, but it's actually very interesting. She arrives at the house at the time when it's beginning to dawn, so we might say twilight. But she remains lying on the ground until full daylight. The indifference of her husband is astounding. He appears to have slept in. He sleeps comfortably on this particular morning. No thought given to what happened the night before. And As he opens the door, what does it say? He's leaving. He's just opening the door to go on his way. Time to go home. He's not going to look for her. It's as if when he threw her out of the door, he never expected to see her again. Which is probably a safe assumption, actually. As I said before, she's nothing more than property to him. 
which was his motivation to get her back in the first place. And so now he's acting as if he had just given away an old piece of furniture and he never expected to see that thing land on his doorstep again. And there it is, verse 28. He finds her. And then when he sees her, of course, it gets still worse because he callously orders her to just get up so we can get going. But as he calls out, she can't answer. Now, at this point, we don't know if she's dead or she's just still in the process of dying. Assuming she hasn't died for a moment, well, then the lack of compassion reaches a zenith at this point. You you really can't imagine someone worse than this, can you? He simply loads her on a donkey-like baggage and moves out. By the time he reaches his home in Ephraim, it appears the girl has died as a result of the trauma. And then the man proceeds to do something no one in Israel had ever seen done before, nor he probably ever considered doing. He dismembers her body into 12 pieces. Now, to our modern ear, and this is something I think very interesting, very telling, to our modern ear, this action, though repulsive, certainly, I don't think it's particularly novel to us, is it? I mean, we hear of similar stuff like this in the news from time to time, sadly, right? People who do atrocities of this kind, right? But that just tells you something about the days in which you live. That this society, I'm saying, has reached a point on a parallel with judges. And yet the shame of it is, in the time of judges, it's shocking. In our time, it's, it's CNN. It's also worth mentioning that it's unclear exactly when the girl died or even what killed her. The Septuagint in that translation, Septuagint is the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew It includes a statement in verse 28 that's not in our English Bible that says she was dead when she was at the doorstep. So in that version, you would then assume he is working on a dead body when he did the dismemberment. But most ancient Hebrew manuscripts don't have that detail. So I'm not confident that the Septuagint has it right. It may have been commentary that a copyist inserted to to just make the whole thing a little more palatable. But it's also entirely possible that her husband was the murderer. That perhaps she was so wounded by the attack that she's left semi-conscious through most of all of this. And perhaps he assumed she was going to die anyway, we don't know. Or even worse, perhaps he decided she was not of any use to him anymore. She was more used to him dead than alive. Because after all, what good is a slave woman, a slave wife, when she's damaged goods? And so maybe at this point he says, you know, I can make better use of a dead body here than I can of a living damaged one. Don't know which of those stories is true, but I wouldn't hold past the worst of it being true given all that's going on around it. Interesting, in verse 29, it says, He laid hold of her, right before it says he cut her. Well, in Hebrew, the word therefore lay hold of is the word for to take by strength. It's a sense of holding something and grabbing it. It's not the sense of just lightly grabbing it or picking it up, which would seem to suggest she resists him, that he had to work hard at the process of the cutting. It could just mean it's hard in general. It could be that she was alive. We don't know. But it leaves open the possibility that his brutality against his wife went to the point of murder. In any case, in any of those scenarios, the degree of viciousness here borders on the inhumane. He desecrates a dead body, which in that day was a sign of tremendous disrespect. It still is today, but in that culture it was even greater. In that day, the worst you might see was in wartime only, a soldier decapitating only the body of a particularly hated enemy. And the examples would be David and Goliath, for example, or the way the Philistines treated Saul. But no one, no one did this to a body. No one went beyond the cutting off of a head. Everything else is gratuitous and excessive and unheard of. 
And now it's cut specifically into 12 pieces because what the Levite's doing here, and he's not just some serial killer, he has a purpose. What he's doing is sending a message to each of the other tribes of Israel besides Benjamin. As you may know, there's 13 tribes. So he cuts it into 12 pieces. And he sends it by way of a messenger, obviously. Somebody carried it. And those messengers who took her body also then were called upon to recount the circumstances of her death to each tribe. And the intention of the Levite was to shock the conscience of the nation, inflame their passions, and cause them to cry out for justice against the one tribe responsible for this act. He wants to mobilize an army for this mass cause of revenge against the Benjamites. In verse 30, we hear the response of the people as they see the parts and they hear the story. They remark, first, nothing like this has ever happened. I think that statement speaks to the whole of the story. It starts with the inhospitable town and then the mob of men demanding homosexual sex and then the concubine's rape and then her death and then the husband's grisly response. From end to end, no one's ever heard of this before. How could they? Can you think of anything worse, really? All of it's beyond their comprehension. And so, as a result, they begin to call for the very kind of response that the Levite had hoped to elicit. They say, consider what this means, friends, speaking to one another, essentially. Take counsel, that is, learn from this situation what must be done. And then they say, speak up, which is a means of saying, let's call up men for the act of revenge. Let's call on our brothers to do the right thing. And this will then result in a war, a civil war within Israel against the Benjamites, which almost wipes out that tribe. But for the grace of God, Benjamin would have been gone. That comes in chapter 20, which we won't do today. But chapter 19 is so revealing because it shows this declining state of culture and morality in the highest of terms. Everywhere you look in the chapter, if you want to take a moment with me as we review what we've looked at, everywhere you look in this chapter, you see, curiously, the appearance of kindness, the appearance of love, the appearance of morality... For example, you see a husband who was earlier seeking to reconcile with his wife. That seems very loving. You see a father-in-law who was offering all that warm hospitality, remember? You see a man offering aid to strangers in the street. And then you see a nation incensed by injustice, ready to right the wrong. Well, that's a good thing too in the end, isn't it? You see, if you just skim through the surface, I mean, if you just look at people's initial reactions or words, you're left with the impression that all's right in Israel. But as the events play out, as you take a little closer look, well, then you begin to discover that this sense they have of morality has become untethered from God. It's relative. Morality, friends, the idea of it, if you go look it up in the dictionary, and interestingly, the modern dictionary, defines it as the result of the standards of society. But, friends, that's not true. That's false. It's not a concept of right and wrong developed by the collective wisdom of people. Morality is an absolute. It comes from the lawgiver himself, from God, according to what's stated in his word. So if a society is ruled by God's word, and as we know, Israel was intended to be, well, then its views of morality will reflect God's views as stated in his word, at least to a degree, at least to the limits of what sinful people can do, right? We may not always keep the morality we know we're supposed to keep, but we won't change what we think it is. But when a society walks away from God, when they say there is no king in these days, though the Lord was the king, well then, the morality of the culture becomes only a matter of convenience and personal opinion. Convenience and personal opinion. 
I do what is best for the moment. And even if I have a rule of some sort that I follow in most cases, under different sets of circumstances, I'll change my rule to what I need then. It's just convenience. And it's also a matter of personal opinion. You can have your rules, and I can have mine. You can choose to do the very thing that I say is wrong, but you say is right, and we can both agree it's okay. Friends, that's not a rule at all. That's not even moral. That is people doing what is right in their own eyes. So you can see the impact of that thinking clearly when you look at this one chapter, which is why I said earlier that Samuel waited to put this incident at the very end of his book, though it occurred much earlier in the chronology of Judges, because it was the poster child for anyone who wanted to have a snapshot on what's going on in Israel during Judges. You want to know about this people in this time? Read this story. It'll tell you everything you need to know about what was going on in Judges. You have a husband seeking reconciliation with his wife, but actually seeking something entirely different. He chooses to marry a second wife. That's sin. That's against God's word. And he does it not out of love because he doesn't seem to have any love for her. He does it because he wants a slave. He wants property. He sees her only as a possession, which therefore allows his personal morality to conclude that when she's no longer useful to him, he can cast her aside. Or even better, when casting her aside helps him, well then that's clearly the right thing to do. It's just relative morality. Then you have the father-in-law who showed all that hospitality, but he was actually self-indulgent. We remember that, right? He shows hospitality motivated by selfish motives, not by genuine love. His misbehavior ultimately led to the Levite departing under risky circumstances, which was not a loving thing to do for your host. If he had truly loved that couple, what would he have done? We said last time he would have told his daughter, the runaway bride, to get back to her husband rather than to give her refuge for four months in his home and in that way support the division of the marriage. There's no love in that. Then you have the old man. The old man, he appeared to show love, didn't he? He offered them a place to go that night, knowing of the evil in the town. And yet he's the first one to suggest throwing his daughter and the guest's wife out to the mob. This is the guy, by the way, who is so concerned for their safety. Then he pitches them out. The depravity of that city altering your morality. And then there's the mob. Let's not forget them, of course. In a very perverse sense, they want love. But they want it under their own terms. Something reserved for a loving marriage relationship is being distorted in the worst possible way. In the most perverse way possible. Finally, you see the hearts of the people of Israel. They're moved by the violence amongst them to call for justice. But the irony is, this is the very same group of people who during this very same time in history was being called upon by their judges to array in battle against the enemies of Israel and not a single one of them would lift their finger. Do you remember that? Do you remember how hard it was in the earlier chapters of this book for some of the early judges to get anyone in Israel to get into any battle? They got to the point in which men would only go into battle if the women led them. In that one moment under Deborah and Barak. So don't think too highly of their willingness now to go to battle. Their passion is inflamed for fleshly reasons, but they wouldn't take the same effort for godly reasons. It's relative. It's convenient. It's a matter of personal opinion. In other words, everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. And ever since Samuel first introduced that phrase to us in this book, he's been working in the narrative to explain all of its ramifications to us. And here you see, I think, the pinnacle of it. People lived according to their own moral compass. They followed whatever rules were best for them. Their flesh drove those choices, and it's destroying them from the inside out. 
And it's not just destroying them morally, it's destroying them physically. They are now consuming one another. They're about to go to war with one another. Obviously, we cannot operate on this basis. At the very least, if the people of God live with morals that are according to what is right in our own eyes, it destroys the distinction that God's people are supposed to maintain for the sake of our witness. Ultimately, it'll destroy us as well, physically if not eternally. I'll finish with a short observation from J. Clinton McCann who said, I think, something that appropriately sums up the chapter. Speaking of this chapter, he says, by describing as clearly and graphically as possible the horrible, terror-filled, violent consequences of human self-assertion and idolatry, that is, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, Judges 19 and the whole book of Judges and the prophetic canon in general invite repentance and conformity of self and society to the just, righteous, and peaceful purposes of God. If hearing this story today bothered you, then let it do its proper work on your heart to do everything possible to avoid it in your own life. Let's go to prayer. Father, I thank you, Lord, for hard messages, even if they are difficult to hear and consider. Father, you call us by your love and mercy to know you and to follow you in obedience. And sometimes, Father, the best instrument you can use to give us motivation to obey that command is to spell out the consequences that come when we don't do it. Many of us, Father, would uh, recoil at the thought of any of these events taking place around us. But there must have been a day, Father, when, when Israel would have felt the same way, surely. Surely there was a day when these things could never have taken place. And yet they did. And so, Father, we wonder how they came to that point and how they got there so quickly. And let that be a warning for us, Father. Help us perhaps remember this story, at least in some way, when necessary, to help us stay away from the things that lead us down the same path. For we tell ourselves we'd never tolerate this amongst us. But will we tolerate something lesser? That's the question, Father. For if we're willing to tolerate something lesser, then we're willing to go down that path. I ask you, Father, you'd always protect us from ourselves. You'd always help us see the, the truth of your word and keep it in our mind and not let it be replaced by what the world would teach us is right. But at the same time, Father, don't let us be pious or self-righteous. We don't want to take the attitude amongst those who don't know you that we are superior or that our morality, Father, means that we can look down on them. But let us be compassionate as Jesus was. Let us be forgiving as he was. But also, Father, let us be uncompromising as he was so that we would have an offer of something better when they ask. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.